0: so it sounds fancy and professional. So here's the experiment. I want to ask, by raise of hands, uh, how many of you in here are like me in that you've had a certain experience? And this experience is that you are going along, day-to-day life, everything seems normal, and then somebody says two words to you, behave yourself. Anybody else here have that? Okay, yeah, usually it's a mom. Guy's in here. Maybe it was your wife recently. I don't know. But you get this idea of saying, behave yourself. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. For me, it didn't always work so well. But I want you to imagine if you hear that. Behave yourself. But you don't just hear it from anybody. What if you heard it from the Apostle Paul himself? Do you think you would listen? I think we probably would. And in fact, there's a portion of Scripture where we see that Paul says, behave yourself. In fact, he tells that to Timothy. And that's going to be our passage today. If you want to turn to 1 Timothy, that's where we're going to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll begin. I want to say thank you to Pastor for the opportunity uh, to preach. I'm always glad to be here at Open Bible and even more thankful for the opportunity to preach. It's a great privilege and honor. New Testament epistle of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. "'These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth.'" I think that most of you here know uh, I'm in college. I'm at a small Bible college in North Carolina. And at college, we have these horrific, awful, ungodly things called thesis papers. And a thesis paper is basically what it sounds like is a paper about a thesis. A thesis is just a main idea. If you'd say that with me, a thesis is a main idea. Good. So take the idea that thesis is a main idea. Keep that. Put that right here. We're going to use that in just a second. You're going to need that. And the other part that you have to realize here with this is that when we're talking about a book like one of these letters in the Bible, that was meant as a whole. You see, today we have these these chapter and verse divisions. We we look at Timothy and we say, okay, I read chapter 1, I read chapter 2, whatever it might be. But that's not the way it was originally written. Now, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for those chapter and verse divisions. It'd be a little hard to do it the way they used to have to, where you open the scroll and just say, okay, turn to the word I exhort, and you know, hopefully you find it. Nope, not that I exhort, the next I exhort. So I'm thankful for that, but that's not the way it was originally written. They were just letters. It was one book. It was one coherent whole. And once you realize that, you realize that each book of the Bible, and the letters in particular, which makes up a good part of the New Testament, have one main thought in them. They each have a thesis, and we said a thesis is main idea, right? So once you realize that, as you go through the Bible and you try to realize, okay, what is the main idea of this book, it actually helps the book to come alive, because then you can trace that theme all throughout the book. Now, Most, if not all, of the books also have plenty of other sub-themes, smaller ideas throughout. But there's one main one. And this is the main idea, the thesis of 1 Timothy. It's found right here in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 that we just read. Look at it one more time. These things, right I unto thee, what things? The the things that he had just been writing, the book of 1 Timothy, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Paul was hoping to go see Timothy. But if I tarry long, he's thinking, I might not be able to make that trip, Timothy. That thou mightest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So what happens here is Saul, when he became Paul, started going on missionary journeys. He went on at least three of them, probably four, maybe even more. And when he would go, he would be preaching the gospel everywhere. He'd go over here and he'd see people saved and he'd say, okay, here's what you do. Take these, uh, take the law, take the prophets, take maybe these few gospels that they had at that time. Just... Study these, preach these, get together on Sundays and go over it. And Then he'd go over to this town, and do the same thing, and over to this town. And he was going all over doing that. And then as he got a little bit older, he started getting in prison more often. And Paul at that point started hearing that these churches were having some problems. Go figure. Churches are made up of people and people have problems. People aren't problems. People have problems. Some of you need to repeat that after me. We're not going to, but it'd be a good idea. People have problems, and so churches have problems. And I'm not just talking about Zebedee over there You know, took your whole pew when his family came in this week or, or the decaf ran out in the foyer. Now, major, major issues in the churches. There were people who were drawing attention away from God. There were some, some people who were basically making a social caste system out of the church where the rich were favored and those who didn't have as much money or as fancy clothes were, they weren't favored. They were pushed aside. Issues like a church member living publicly in an incestuous relationship and still trying to be part of the church. These were some major issues that these churches were facing. So what Paul would do is he would appoint young men, men like Timothy, and he would send them to these churches and say, I want you to lead them, get other men under you to lead them, appoint deacons and get these churches on the right track. And then he would write them letters, these epistles that we have, to, to address doctrinal issues, he would say, This is what I've heard has been going on. This is how you can, this is why it's wrong from God's word. This is how you can fix it. And so, what had happened in this case is the church of Ephesus had been having some problems. So, Paul sent basically his, his, his star preacher, he sent his son in the faith, Timothy, down there. This was the best they could get. And they were still having some issues. So Paul writes 1 Timothy to address these issues, and he says, here's the whole idea of the book. The big idea, the thesis is how to behave in church. That's what it is, and it runs all throughout this. And that is a very relevant message, not just for Timothy's Day, but for ours as well. Because a lot of times people don't know how to behave in church. And I'm not just talking about silencing your cell phones and you know the kid crying in the back. Not, not like that but actually spiritually, how to behave in church. And a lot of times, a good Baptist church, we know how to behave, but we've lost the reason why. We just do it because, well, that's, that's the way we've always done it. Why? Well, Paul addresses that here. And in fact, he gives us eight behaviors for church. And what we're going to do for the, this message is just kind of skim over First Timothy. It's going to be like being in an airplane, going over a six-mile stretch of field and just being able to glance over it quickly. We're just going to pull those out. And I have to admit, as I was going through this, when I kind of realized, okay, this is Paul's thesis, this is his main point, I made like a mental checklist of, okay, if I were writing this book, how would I say to behave in church? I kind of had that down. And then I found as I stayed this out that, believe it or not, none of the things on my list ended up on Paul's list. And none of Paul's list ended up on mine. So this is probably not going to be what you expect. But it's what we need even for today. And so my goal if this message is successful by God's grace, is to be able to share these eight behaviors with you, and then through God's Holy Spirit, at least one, if not more, will be implanted on you and how you can grow every time that we are here together as a body of Christ in church. Let's look at the very first one in 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we just go through the book here, we're going to begin in verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do." The very first behavior that Paul tells us is that you must not give false doctrines any time or attention. And and Paul is not saying that we can't refute error. That's, that is important. You know, this is the same Paul that said we have to be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks us a reason, of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. So this isn't against apologetics. If you know me, I, I love apologetics, and that's simply knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and how to defend it. So Paul is not against that, but what he is saying is that you cannot focus on this. This can't become what is your obsession, if you will. Uh, turn over... Just a couple chapters to chapter 4. This is going to be the only time we jump out of chronological order because Paul addresses this in chapter 4 also. Look at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hotter iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. I think everybody here would agree that false doctrines will come. That just happens. You just have to look at history. Look at all the cults that are out there. False doctrines will come. It happens. And Paul was specifically addressing certain ones that were in the church of Ephesus. There were at least two guys that were there stirring up the pot. One of them, his name was Alexander. The other was one that you probably haven't heard in the list of common baby names lately. It was Hymenaeus. And these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were going around, and they were spreading at least two big heresies. The first was that Christ had already come. The resurrection had already happened, and, and we were basically living in the end times. And, and the idea we kind of get from that is that they were given a, a eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of mentality. Just go live it up. There's, there's no reason to be holy. But then the other thing that they started teaching was that God had said to abstain both from marriage and from meat. And Paul said, no, that's not the case. Those are two areas that God actually ordained back in Genesis. God is the one who created marriage in Genesis. God is the one who said it's okay to eat meat in Genesis and then again in the book of Acts. Now we realize especially today and even in Paul's day there are some people who would choose to abstain either from marriage or from meat for a personal reason and that's totally fine. Paul isn't addressing that. He's talking about when people want to try to bring religion into it and say God has commanded that you abstain from marriage. God has commanded that you abstain from meat. If you have a personal reason not to be married or to be vegan or vegetarian or whatever you might choose. That's fine. That's personal. But Paul was addressing that these people had tried to bring God into and say, this is what God had said when when God really hadn't said that. And I find it fascinating that Paul actually gives Timothy a choice here. He gives him an either or scenario. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. But refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little... But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. So he says you can either listen to profane and vain old wives' fables, or you can exercise yourself in godliness. And when I read that, I didn't think that necessarily made sense at first. I thought, well, what's the correlation here? You can either listen to old wives' fables, or you can exercise yourself in godliness. But what Paul was saying is that if you are focusing on what essentially adds up to doctrinal campfire stories, you're not going to be growing in your personal walk with God. There's nothing wrong with knowing what is wrong out there, with being able to address wrong doctrine, but your focus needs to be on what's right. You have to know what you believe before you can refute what somebody else believes. So that's Paul's point. Secondly, he gives a second behavior, and that is you must develop a selfless love reflex. Look back in chapter 1 with me as we continue there, verse 5 of chapter 1. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now you say, what in the world is a selfless love reflex? Well, we all have reflex actions. There, There's little subconscious reactions to some stimulus, right? And the first thing I always think of when I hear reflex is that goofy little orangish-red triangular hammer that doctors use to smash your kneecaps. And, you know, the idea is that, well, at least you're supposed to, when they go, don't you go, Like that. It's just, you don't even think about it. It just happens. That is a reflex action. It's not something that you thought, oh man, I'm supposed to kick my knee right now. No, it just happens. And Paul's point, and really Jesus' point, is that as a church, we are supposed to have that kind of reaction with love. We see somebody in need, and we automatically want to go help them. We automatically just jump in and say, what can I do to help? It's not, oh man, I'm busy today, I don't have the time. It's not that, it's, it's, let's worry about the cost later. Let's worry about the inconvenience later. Let's just go help them. Let's just go show love right now. That is the idea of a selfless love reflex, and that's not common to us. It's really not. You know, our, our first priority is us. Our, our, our natural inclination is, how can I take care of myself first? And, and, and when we have that spiritual leading, we tend to think, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so busy today. I don't have time to, to go by and, and stop by that neighbor and, and ask how they're doing or witness oh, I don't want to make that hospital visit. They might not be there. They might be asleep. They might be, uh, I, God, I already gave out my tracks for the week. I already hit my quota, and that guy looks like he could snap me in half with his bare hands. We make these excuses, but Jesus' point and Paul's point here in this in this letter is that that selfless love reflex that should be our 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 initial reaction and not the exception to the rule. That's his point with that. Look now in verse one of chapter two. I exhort therefore. That first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not." a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And all the Pentecostals in the house said amen right at that verse. Paul says supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks. That to me doesn't sound like just a 15-second thank you for this food at mealtimes. Paul is saying that as a church, prayer is integral, prayer is powerful, prayer is paramount, prayer is the work. Prayer, somebody once said, is the muscle that moves the hand of God. We're not going to accomplish anything without prayer. We need to pray for other people. In fact, Paul specifically mentions two other types of people that we are to pray for. The first is those in leadership, those in authority. That might be in governmental authority. That might be in church authority. It might just be your boss at work. It might be your parent, whoever it might be. Paul says, pray for those in authority. That's whether you voted for them or not. That's whether you wanted to see them elected or not. That's whether you were hoping they'd be over you or not. Because the simple fact of the matter is even if you didn't vote for the person or you didn't want that person over you at the office, they could stand to have you pray for them to have wisdom. And if you're praying for them, chances are they might be treating you just a little bit better too. So it's kind of a win-win there. Other type of person that Paul says we need to pray for is for those who have not yet accepted Jesus alone as Savior the friends, the family members, the co-workers, who are trusting in something, whatever that something might be. Maybe it's their good works. Maybe it's going to church. Maybe it's just being a good person and saying, I hope when I get to heaven, God's going to say, you're good enough. That, that those people would realize those things aren't good enough. That it is only through Jesus Christ alone and believing on Him for salvation that we can get to heaven. Pray that those people would see that truth lived out through us and be saved. And one other point I will make of this here where Paul's talking about prayer is remember he's writing to a church here. Yes, he's writing to Timothy, but it's to the entire church of Ephesus through Timothy. It sounds kind of like a biblical precedent for middle-of-the-week prayer meetings to me. If the church is praying, you need to be a part of that. There's a power, there's a godliness that God looks down and blesses when he sees his church praying corporately. Let's look in the next verse of chapter 2. That'll be verse 9. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority in the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression." Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, yes, I know this is a very controversial passage and it has been abused on both sides of the spectrum. And yes, I know I am asking for trouble being this young and addressing in a message. And believe me, I have college professors that if they knew I was preaching out of a text that said, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, they would shoot me. But a lot of times we use or we hear people use these verses to quote-unquote put women in their place. And I can't help but think that if Paul were here, he would be absolutely frustrated with us at the way that we've handled this passage. Because Paul's point, if you look at the entire context of it, was this, no more and no less. It wasn't about women's dress at all. It wasn't about putting women in their place. It was simply this, that the women in the church of Ephesus were behaving in such a way that their behavior was no different than the prostitutes in the Temple of Diana, also at Ephesus. You see a problem with that? Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily that the women in the the Church of God were physically being in in an intimate relationship in the church, but it was that they were drawing attention to themselves, which is what the women in the Temple of Diana did, instead of to the God that they were worshiping. That's a problem no matter who's doing it. And that goes back to the, these. there were certain women who had a lot of money. They had the money for the fancy clothes, for the nice jewelry, and they were making a social class system out of the church of Ephesus to where they were the ones who were basically put on a fashion show in church, and if you didn't have that kind of money, you didn't matter to the church. That's a problem, and that is what Paul is addressing here. And really, it's something that if we're honest... We have even in churches today, not necessarily that exact issue, but the issue of whether intentionally or otherwise drawing attention to ourselves in worship rather than to God. And there's nothing wrong with being expressive in worship, there's nothing, but we have to ask ourselves is what we are doing drawing attention to the worshiper or to the one that we are worshiping? That is Paul's point. Now, look over. In chapter 3, he's going to address the men at this point. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule the house of God, how shall he take care of the church of God? Or excuse me, of his own house, how shall he take care of the Church of God? Not a novice, lest li- being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. You see, America is littered with churches led by good intentioned men, but who are not qualified to be pastors. And that was the case in Paul's day as well. There were people who wanted to lead. They were maybe good at leading, and they loved being in the church, and they thought, great, that'll make me a good pastor. And Paul, and through Paul, God says, no, no, no. There are certain qualifications you have to meet. And it's not that the pastor is holier than anybody else. It's not that he's a better person than anybody else. These are qualities that should be in every Christian. But God's point was that he took the leadership of his people of his sheep, of his flock, so seriously that he wanted to put the best men possible in charge of them. With the idea that then his flock wouldn't get hurt. Now we know that there are times that the church does get hurt because it's led by people. But the idea was for that not to happen. So the fifth behavior that Paul gave was that you must respect the office of pastor. And by that, I don't mean the room in the back of the church where pastor does his study, but the the position of pastor. You have to hold that in high regard. And then Paul continues, verse uh, verse 10, let these also first be proved and let them... Use the office of deacon being found, or verse 8 is where it starts, excuse me. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. "...for they that have used the office of deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." So he also focuses on deacons here. And we have to understand that in a lot of churches today, not in Open Bible, thankfully, but in a lot of churches today, the deacon is not what it was in the original church. A lot of times they've just kind of taken on a business administration role and sometimes are more of a headache to the pastor than a help. But if you look in the book of Acts, the reason for a deacon was to meet the physical needs of the people of the church. So that the pastor could be freed up to do his own work of studying the Bible, preparing messages, and praying better. That was the point. It was because these pastors have a heart to help their people, so they were to bring in like-minded men as deacons to help meet those needs so that they could spend more time studying and preaching and praying. And I do want to point out that here at Open Bible we have stellar pastor and deacons. And something else that I want to make sure you see in this is that while each of these is necessary as a qualification, you can't just look at it and say, oh, that person's good with money, that person's got a good family, but he has an anger problem, he'll he'll probably be okay, he's got nine out of ten, right, or whatever, no, they have to be qualified in all, but it's also important to realize that these are lifestyles, that just because there might be a time when... Uh, you know, the pastor's house is uh, messy and you go over to visit her just because the deacon uh, made a poor financial decision or whatever it might be. Just because of a one time, that doesn't necessarily disqualify a person. It's a lifestyle that this, that this is talking about here in these verses. And then Paul, he went from talking about the women to the men in the, in the pastor and the deacon. And now he goes to the entire church. He says, just in case you think you were somehow left out in that, I want to address you. And we see the seventh point. The the behavior that he gives, you must let God use you in the church. Look with me in chapter 3 and verse 25. Excuse me, chapter 3 doesn't have 25. Where did I leave off? I'm sorry, chapter 4, and it was verse 12. Excuse me. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. So Paul says you must let God use you in the church. A lot of times in churches the younger people feel like they're too young to be used. Like they just need... Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of the idea of, of somebody want, you want somebody who's experienced to do something, but then how do you get that experience if, you're, if you just need somebody who's experienced? And then sometimes the older saints in the church also feel left out. They feel too old for God to be using them. But that wasn't the intent at all. Paul was saying that in the church of God, in a community of Christ... It's supposed to be all the believers. It's supposed to be the young ones on fire for God, having this passion and serving God, and and getting experience under the leadership of older people so that they're not novices. And then those older people passionately training the next generation. If you are a member of Open Bible Baptist Church, if you attend Open Bible Baptist Church, there is a role for you to play. That there is something that, some way that God can use you. That you are never too young nor too old for that. And whether it's a big task or a small task, it is one that God has for you. You must let God use you in the church. And Paul's last charge, his last behavior that he mentions, is you must develop contentment that leads to an eternal focus. Look with me in chapter 6 and verse 4. The last point basically covered the entirety of chapter five we just summarized. So this begins in chapter six, verse four of First Timothy. He is proud. Actually, let's begin verse three. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to doctrine, which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strifes, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdrawal thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can take nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." But thou, O man of God, flee these things, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And this thought really covers the entirety of chapter 6. We know that the Bible talks a lot about contentment, but don't lose the reason why. You see, contentment leads to an eternal focus. Because if you are content, if you are happy with what you have here in this life, whether good or bad, if you're happy with the quote-unquote lot that you have in life, then you're going to be looking for the next life. Your focus isn't on the stuff of this life. I, I would put it this way. I'd say live in such a way that whether God has blessed you with a lot or he's blessed you with a little, live so that whatever you have, if it was taken away from you tomorrow, you would be no happier or sadder. And that is the eternal focus. And in other words, if you want to be able to receive the crown that Paul talks about where he says, for those who love the appearing of the Lord, those who are looking for his coming, if you want to be able to receive that crown, how do you do it? He gives the answer right here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, be content with such things as you have. Because by being content, it frees you up to not worry about the stuff around you. That whether it's not having a lot, whether it's getting a flat tire on the way to work, whether it's some problem that you feel is in your life, some trial, that is not going to stress you it's not going to weigh you down because you are able to look to the next life to the eternity that is coming so paul gives eight ways eight behaviors for when we're in church and these are these are important it's about rightly dealing with false doctrines allowing that selfless love Reflex, to become second nature, making prayer central, not drawing attention to yourself instead of the one that you're worshiping. It's about respecting the offices of pastor and deacon, letting God use you in the church and developing contentment to lead to an eternal focus. I would say, how much more of the church of God that he wants us to be would we as Open Bible be if we would each, of, each and every single one of us here would take just one of those and focus on that? may focus on it for the next week, maybe the next month, maybe even just the next year where you say, when I am in the house of God, I want to focus on increasing in this area. That was Paul's message for Timothy 2,000 years ago and for us today. Open Bible Baptist Church, behave yourself.